welcome to the Dairy Dialogue Weekly Podcast. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and this week, as promised, we have some interviews from the Barcelona Free From Expo, and a couple of other interviews just to make it nice and long. The Barcelona Free From Expo was definitely a great event, other than I wish I was free from this cold. It's not on the same scale as Vita Foods or Anuga or some of the other big events, but there's an awful lot packed into a small space. There's plenty of content related to our industry too, and it's not just food, drink and ingredient producers, there are packaging companies in attendance too. The staff there are very friendly and helpful, and as I mentioned in a previous podcast, I was mightily impressed by the number of places to put empty sample cups and the like, pretty much at every intersection. The aisles were nice and wide, and the location in the city is a good one. As I also mentioned, the only downside was being unable to communicate with some booth staff as they were glued to their phones and tablets every time I went by and tried to make some kind of noise to get them to look up, all to no avail. I figured I shouldn't really have to say, uh, excuse me, very loudly. Perhaps when they got back to their head offices, they were asked how business went, and they'd say something like, well, not great, not much interest really, to be honest, but look at these cute puppy videos that I downloaded. Anyway, I thought I'd run with three interviews from the show on slightly different aspects of that free-from space. One with Annette Almy, Export Manager, New Markets for Finnish Dairy Cooperative Valio. Xavier Papasse, the European Sales Manager of International Taste Solutions. And David Esteban, Sales Manager at Spanish packaging company Fibropack. And if that wasn't enough, we talked to Peter Collane from Lewis Road Creamery in New Zealand about their latest launch, Laura Goodbrand, Cargill Europe's starch product line manager, about their new ingredients, and we take a look at the global dairy markets with INTL FC Stone's Charlie Highland. So let's get right into the Free From Expo interviews, so it's as free from me as possible. And the first interview, which ironically was the first interview I did at the show, is with Annette Almy, who is the export manager, new markets for the Finnish dairy cooperative Valio, which has always been known for its innovative products, as well as its lactose-free developments. So Valio is here with our Spanish portfolio, so we're available in the Spanish stores with our, with our brand Valio. Uh, one of our expertise is, is the lactose-free products. Um, so we have here the Plan Cremoso, which is a very creamy dessert with our patented technology. But I think what's really growing right now in Spain is the protein category. So people want more protein in their diets, healthy snacks on the go. No added sugars in the product, uh, it has to be high in protein. And I see that shelf growing a lot and that's one of our main, main expertise why we're here now. And people seem to be more and more interested. Several events about the protein. And, and Valio has always been at the forefront of the lactose-free exactly. movement. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so that you, you're, what are you seeing in the lactose-free space? You're seeing that growing everywhere, or? It's quite interesting. It depends on the market a lot. So in some markets we're seeing it grow more. Some markets, like uh, for example here in Spain, I see that it's taken over a bit by uh, by vegan products. So it's more like a mix of vegan products and, and lactose-free. There is still quite a lot of thin lactose products here in Spain. Um, but then when you compare to Finland, which is well as home market, there I would say lactose-free is more or less like a standard in the category. 
So it's, it's quite different depending on the market, I would say. Right. And, and the rest of the Scandinavian countries and the, the Baltics, what are you seeing as the it's trends? More stable, there? I would say. Yeah, it's more. It's been there for quite a while already. Whereas in some other market, it's just starting to you know pitch it up a bit. So. Right. And, and so what, what are you doing in innovation right now? Because obviously you've always had that lactose-free space. Yes. And what are you doing in innovation in, in that space now? Well, that also depends on the on the market. Over here with the Spanish market, I would say the most innovative product is, is, is the plant cremoso, which is a really something that doesn't the market doesn't have currently. So it's kind of Spanish people like their desserts. Uh, they like the plants that they sell a lot, but there's nothing really quite that creamy as our... It's more like a mix of panacotta and plan or natillas type of product. In Finland, we are really starting up with the uh, oat-based products. So that's something that uh, Valio is jumping into the train. We cannot avoid that. So we're a dairy company, but we still do some oats as well. Yeah, and, and that's that's recent, is it? Adding that into it's the... rather recent, yes, yes. So that's expanding now. So uh, more and more products into that category, yes. And also meat replacements. So we also have this meat food product that's. Uh, it's it's not vegan. It's vegetarian, so it's not meat. It's a it's a dairy-based protein. Which you would expect because you're a dairy cooperative. Of course, of course. Yeah. So we have to keep up with the dairy as well. Yeah. So we yeah. cannot forget that. Yeah. And, and the vegan products are they are they specifically in the Finnish market right now? Uh, mostly, yeah. So that's always the main market when we launch new products usually. So this is the biggest market. So. Right. Yes. And, and do you do you look at the Finnish market and then expand your products? based on how well they do in Finland or how does that? Depends on the market, depends. So we have certain markets. It also depends whether it's industrial or consumer product. When we talk about the consumer products, then we have certain markets where we focus on right now. So uh, right. have a clear strategy on that. Yeah, and, and of course, like I mentioned before, Valio seems to be very closely connected with lactose-free. Do, yes. um, do you find that companies come to you to help them to innovate within that space you can yeah we actually sell our technology so we have a patent for a technology of uh, making the lactose free so taking the lactose out of dairy and that's a completely different process than what companies normally use so that's also a big part of, uh, of our business to selling the technology and that license to other companies so in that sense yes also mm. but also the final product the big bags of the powders without lactose so yes we, we see that still as a, as a market that there's more to come in that as well. Next, we go to a UK-based company, International Taste Solutions, which provides a range of taste and texture solutions for a variety of industries, including, of course, dairy and dairy alternatives. We spoke with European sales manager Xavier Papasse. Uh, ITS is a, an English company. We are based in, in Newbury. Uh, we, uh, we started our business in 2009, and our main business is natural flavors. So we provide uh, solutions to provide uh, taste with a clean label composition uh, to several applications. Uh, we started with bakery, but then uh, immediately we jumped into dairy. So we have been working with uh, many dairy companies, cheese manufacturers as well. Yeah. So we give uh, both flavorings, natural flavorings, but also uh, inclusions. So little pieces, little fruity pieces to give some added value to the cheese. Okay, your colleague was saying sugar reduction is a big thing with dairy, yeah. especially in yogurts. Absolutely, and yogurts and, and drinks. Uh, sugar reduction is really a, a main thing at the moment. And, and how do you approach that? 
Yeah. Uh, we've got a range of uh, natural solutions, uh, all of them labeled as natural flavor, and they increase the sweetness perception of the consumer. So we are able to reduce the sugar, but at the same time keeping a nice profile so the consumer can uh, can be appealed to repeat and again and again. So this is our approach. And, and also so that when on the label as well, it's important that people can pronounce the uh, Exactly, the exactly, exactly. We want to keep the clean label uh, above everything, yeah. Uh, you have also a sheet about trends. Does that apply to the dairy industry as well? Yeah, absolutely. We uh, we give a lot of relevance to the what's going on in the market, which are the consumers demanding. So we we try to track uh, what's going on in uh, all the food and beverage industry uh, on a transversal way. So all kinds of applications, because many times our our customers are picking up ideas from one sector to the others is, is really a, a good source of uh, inspiration for them right. and you you work with your customers they do they come to you with asking you if you can do certain things or? exactly exactly yes. this is a, a, a two ways a two, two bi-directional system yeah either we propose new ideas or many times they also come to us saying I've seen this in the market, can you do it? Or can you give me some ideas? Because I need something for the new season. Yeah, that's very really common. And I guess some of it's easier than others. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, yeah. From from nine to 10, we dedicate to the real things and then we to the impossible things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah and, and you work with companies just in the UK or around the world? Our homeland is the UK, absolutely. But we are moving little by little in the continent. Yeah, and this exhibition here is one of the examples. We started to work in Iberia, Spain and Portugal uh, one year and a half ago. We are very happy about it and the experience is really, really positive. A Spanish packaging company that's doing well because of its recyclable products since the single-use plastics issue became more prominent is Fiberpack. The company has a range of eco-friendly solutions and we spoke with David Esteban, Fiberpack's sales manager. Okay, we are from Spain, a Spanish company, and we are developing more and more compostable, compostable and biodegradable products, especially for food and vegetables and meat, fish, also for the daily industry we have options like this corn starch packaging. And we are uh, having good success. We were also in Birmingham exhibiting there, and also in Germany and in Madrid. So and every day is, uh, we are having more and more uh, inquiries. Uh, yeah, it's it's very big right now. People want recyclable, and they want things that aren't going to be thrown away in the single use. It's very very yes. very important. You have to to understand that there are two kind of. Uh, recyclable that is uh, or compostable is industrial compostable or home compostable home compostable is that you can compost at home and industrial you have to make a special uh, treatment to the material uh, but there are alternatives to everything right and you sell these around the world yes we are look we are making business in Europe we are making business uh, mainly in, in, in Spain but we have also some business in South America and also North America Okay, and you're seeing a big um, increase in 
interest in this kind of product? Yes, every day, uh, mainly the, the big uh, players like supermarkets, uh, Lidl, Aldi, Carrefour, Cortingles in Spain, they are pushing to, to use this kind of packaging uh, and we are waiting for the law to implement uh, this kind of materials because uh, people are trying to, to escape a little bit because it's, it's more uh, expensive. But at the end, we have to, to, to care about the environment also. Right. And, and you would sell your products to the companies that produce like the sliced cheese and the, so you would, you would sell to the producers? Yes, we can sell to the industry or to distributors that go to small industries or uh, final shops. Right. Okay. And, and you can create products for anything within the dairy industry like yogurts and sliced cheese? And, yes. Uh, uh, we can make uh, special tools for a uh, concrete product or a special industry. So, so it, it, you wouldn't have to be an existing product, you can tailor make something for a company we if they need customize. something? Yeah, we yeah. can customize with no problem. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Now it's over to the global company Cargill to learn about their new ingredients that are applicable to the dairy industry. Although, as luck would have it, for a neat transition from the Free From Expo in Barcelona, Laura Goodbrand, who is the starch product line manager, is married to a Spaniard. It's the best link I could come up with. Anyway, Laura's from Scotland, which is where I live, so after talking for way too long about that, I asked Laura to give us some more information on the latest additions to the Cargill portfolio. So, um, Simshire 99400 and 405 are Cargill's latest entry into the functional label-friendly starch space. They are high-performance, waxy maize-based starches that can work in both low, moderate and high food production processes, and they were specifically designed and developed for both culinary and, importantly, dairy application markets. In dairy specifically, Simshire 99400 and 99405 offer exceptional process stability and texture stability during production and over shelf life. We've looked at the product in several applications and um, some of them that are relevant to your customers today would be VLA custard applications which undergoes a lighter pasteurization set of conditions and in creamy dairy desserts that undergo more of a harsh process like sterilization and homogenization and the results have been fantastic. The Simpure starches have brought great body a smooth texture and great stability into these formulations. And as far as labelling, what what would they be labelled as? So Simpure starches are label-friendly starches, which means they label simply as starch, maize starch or corn starch, and in the UK they would label as corn flour. And, and what do you already have in that Simpure range? We already have a range of products that are based on potato starch also, so they are the Simpure 995 series, 5 being for potato. So we have several products already in that portfolio, and these new waxy maize products are the Simpure 994 series that, that bring that additional functionality to newer applications like the dairy areas that we're talking about today. And, and as far as the development of these things is concerned, I would imagine you have to do an awful lot of testing in many, many different conditions in order to be able to release these to the to your customers. How, how long have they been in preparation? Well, we've been working with the Simpure uh, portfolio for a number of years now. In fact, we launched Simpure in 2017. 
And there's a couple of things we've been doing over that period is one, investing in um, understanding more about the trends and the consumer needs and working out the functionalities that our customers truly require. The second is developing and investing in clean technologies that will allow us to make these products so that we can contain that simple starch ingredient declaration. And the third is being able to put them through our formulation expertise group to validate them in standard application systems and more complex application systems to make sure that they will always perform. So we have teams based globally. Um, our main team in Europe is held in Vilvoorde in Belgium, and we have application experts that really lead on these different groups um, to help us to validate through a number of different systems the true functionality of the product before we go out to customer and ask them to trial, test, and approve on their applications. All right, yeah, because I was just thinking you mentioned the global aspect of things. You were talking about very varied conditions where you think of cold countries and than the Middle East where it's warm, so it has to be able to perform in a variety of different scenarios. Absolutely, and, and like any new product development, we have to be really cautious and careful about what we're looking the product in and where it can perform at its best. So when we're considering the product, we're looking at not only how the product performs in the application process, we're also looking at what's in the formulation in terms of the other recipe items that may or may not have an interaction with the starch ingredients. We're looking at where the product's being stored, whether it needs to be stored under chilled, ambient, frozen conditions. And then we're looking at what the shelf life requirements are. Is it a short or long shelf life? And what's the requirement for the, the end customer in terms of taking it to their consumers? And how long does it need to stay fresh on shelf and be still that high quality texture over that length of time? So obviously, when you work with your own customers, it's quite a discussion and quite a hand-in-hand -hand process of getting from where they want to be to where the product ends up? I think with any product development project, whether it be with a standard modified starch product or with one of our new innovations like Simpure, it's really important that we do stay hand-to-hand -hand with the customers because um, we need to make sure that their product fundamentally is successful. They want that texture, that shelf life, that overall consumer appeal and they want it over the shelf life of the product. So when we're working with our customers anyway, one of our key attributes or, or key focus areas is really showing them that we can help to develop that formulation, uh, delivering the expertise and texture that we have and fundamentally making it an, a, a top-notch, 100% um, successful product. Right. It must be, uh, it must be quite the challenge because obviously you have to work with them, but also you have to be able to understand the trends for the end consumer as well. Absolutely. So trends are fundamentally hugely important. So delivering our solutions that are on trend is actually fully embedded into the cargo way of life. And um, from our technical application groups through to sales, marketing, and within our um, product development teams, each of the cargo employees will follow and observe their market trends. And because we're spread across Europe as a whole, but also globally, we look at the regional market trends and that helps us to, to contribute the ideas and bring those updates back to our marketing groups to make sure that we're on, on trend and, and, and keep those insights aligned within the organisation. Besides this, we also commission research, preparatory research every year on various topics. Recently, we did uh, a bit of research in dairy across the global view on what consumers are really looking for in dairy. And we had a white paper presented um, um, to our daily customers to help to share that insight that we gleaned from that research report. 
And I think as a result of doing both, taking our people on the ground and their insights and, and experiences, whilst also doing proprietary research, helps us to not only capture the trends, but also share the insights with our customers, whilst also with our really good technical applications teams can really help to support the customers with their formulation challenges. So all of those different parts together, it's a bit like a jigsaw. The constant dialogue with the customers is obviously key, um, and it makes it means that we can help our food and beverage manufacturers meet their challenging application goals in a very demanding marketplace and deliver really fantastic top quality products. And, and obviously, the those trends are not static and products and product development is not static how do you do, do you need to tweak the these particular products or will you just simply add new products into the range in order to be able to diversify as those trends change absolutely the trend the moving trends and where those trends expand into different application categories means that there needs to be different functionalities in the product ranges we're really, really convinced that the Simpure 99400 and 405 value propositions in terms of the features and benefits that they can bring to our customers are absolutely on trend for these markets. And as our customers are seeking more functionality, we will add and expand to that range of Simpure starches with wider functionality, with greater performance, using carrots and new botanicals so that we can meet the consumer's desire for a better, simpler, functional, high-performance ingredients that can help to make the future of their food innovation. All right, so always changing. Always changing. And great to keep us on our toes as well, honestly, Jim, because it means that we're constantly challenging ourselves back, working harder, working deeper to really uncover what the next product generation needs to look like. And the customer feedback is fundamentally the driver behind that. Right, and have you had any feedback yet on the new products, or is it too early to, to say? We have. We've had some very successful customer validations. So through the innovation process, we always go to our customers in an early phase during pilot to ask them to help us to determine if we've got the right functionalities. And through that process, we've had some incredibly good positive feedback. Many customers really, really keen for us to um, have wider um, volumes so that they could start to really push those formulations forward. Watch this space, there's more to come because I think the Simpure brand and, and what we have in terms of aspirations for it are going to be really, really exciting. And now it's to New Zealand where Lewis Road Creamery has launched some new products, milk sourced from only Jersey cows. To tell us more about how these new products came about and how well they're doing is Lewis Road Creamery's Peter Colain. So, Peter, how long have the products been in development? Not that long, and then quite a long time, really. So, so when we when we started Lewis Road, you know, it, it, it was on a mission to make butter. So, so that's that's what we started with, Jim. And then a year or so after that, um, I, you know, I turned my attention to milk. And the the original idea was to produce Jersey milk in a glass bottle. That, that was the sort of the, the, the very starting point. I remember going to Green Valley Dairy, who were our bottlers, and saying, you know, what I'd like is um, Jersey milk in, in, in a glass bottle. And, and GBD got this and said, well, you can't do glass, you know, because uh, the plant uh, doesn't accept glass and, and normal anyway, so you'll have to, you know, you know, use a standard plastic bottle. So we we created our own, you know, 
um, lookalike glass bottle, which has become sort of quite iconic. Um, but on the milk front, it was better news. They said, look, <laughs> we, can, uh, we can do Jersey milk, but we can go one better. We can do uh, organic Jersey milk. And so that's, that's what we started with. So we, when we launched our milk range, it was organic Jersey milk for about two months. And then we ran out of Jersey milk and switched speed of light to um, mixed herd organic just to make sure that we could continue with you know sufficient supply and that's what we've really carried on with you know ever since and we've got uh, half of the organic milk market supermarket but um, one of the things that I learned really <laughs> you see other people would know this but one of the things I learned um, when we launched and I think we launched at about this time of the year we went pretty quickly into uh, our you know, uh, winter season, and you know most of the farms are set up for spring calving, and so we we ran out of milk very quickly, and we introduced um, a premium range of milk, which was basically a, a, a non-organic uh, whole milk, um, but no permeate um, and no PKE, but otherwise, you know. Uh, milk as we know it, and that was really introduced to to, to hold our uh, our space on the shelves on the on the chiller shelves as organic milk came back on stream. Then obviously it, it took that space over, etc. But we had a uh, we've always had a sort of a small holding ever since of um, non-organic milk. The issue that we have faced is that, and I think organic milk, you know, we, we've been doing it for about five years, but last year, towards the end of last calendar year, was the first time since launch that we increased our shelf price, um, and we increased it quite substantially um, by, you know, 20 plus percent. Um, and we predicted a, uh, you know, a volume loss. Uh, of about 10 points, but a, but a, you know, a bit of value improvement, and and that's what we got. And what it what it told us was um, there is a real market for you know organic milk, and there is also a ceiling at which demand quickly uh, drops off. So you know people will, will 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 pay a premium for organic milk, but but there's a limit to the premium they'll pay. So to answer your, your very first question, you know, how long has this been going? That was about three months ago, three and a half months ago. And I just, but I had one of those little moments thinking, well, hang about, how have we got ourselves in this position? And I just went right back to that very first, you know, meeting where, where I said, you know, um, we want to bottle Jersey milk. And thought, well, that's what we should do. And we should protect our organic um, volumes as much as possible, but introduce an alternative which is better than the premium uh, range that we had, which was, you know, as I say, essentially permeate-free and PKE-free, but otherwise um, milk as we know it, uh, and introduce a single-breed white milk range, which um, would be more affordable than organic, um, and we could price it at less, obviously, than organic and somewhat more than direct competitors in that mainstream area, which are, you know, Anchor and the Fonterra's brand and Meadow Fresh, which is Goodwin Fielder's brand. So that decision we took, say, about three and a half months ago, and then we've just had this furious sort of scramble to sort out how we were going to identify supply. 
and then B, how we're we going to segregate that supply at, uh, at both the farm and the bottling plant. Finally, launch it on market. Sounds like it's been hectic, to say the least. Mm. <laughs> but it's one of the joys of New Zealand, I think. And maybe it's one of the joys of dairy full stop, but it's definitely the joy of, of you know, dairy in New Zealand. That, uh, it's a competitive sector, but um, people are really willing to cooperate in a way that I don't think we see in most other industries. The other thing that we've done, which is what I find really satisfying, is that there is a, a Jersey Breeders Association in New Zealand called you know, Jersey New Zealand, strange enough, and they have been fantastically helpful as well in, in locating additional sources of Jersey so as demand ramps up, supply can match it. You know, the reason that I wanted to do it way back you know, at the beginning of this thing was you know, it's known as the, as the best sort of drinking milk. And I think that because it's not an, because it's not priced like organic milk, Jersey milk is, is essentially a standard farm gate price. We can pay a premium to make sure ours is eighty free and a premium, you know, to have the milk segregated at the milking shed. But otherwise, the starting point is you know much more viable than um, you know than the higher price organic and and sort of less volatile. What's the recognition or recognition like within New Zealand of Jersey milk? Is it something that you're going to have to promote quite heavily or is there already recognition of what it stands for? It's sort of a bit of both. I think, you know, that, that because New Zealand, no one's too far removed from the farms, there's sort of reasonable understanding when you when you say, you know, the car, the, the, those brown cars that you see driving around the country, uh, jerseys, uh, sort of, people get it. And we've always, you know, had a very strong social media presence. The coverage we've had has been fantastic. And what does the range consist of? So we, we're going to do it in, in two parts. So to begin with, we've got, you know, the, the three classics, which are uh, non-homogenized silver top and blue, uh, which is the homogenized, the mainstream homogenized product, and then a light product. But I want to keep going hammer down, and as we develop this, I want that range to keep extending. And um, you know, I can see a lot of opportunities for more specialised products. You know, like a lactose-free product, for example, and creams, obviously. Um, but but the reason that I think we can do it, Jim, is that the input price is better than you know, if, if we were to do the same with organic, you know, the prices would just be through the roof. And what's the reaction been like to it so far? I know it's only been a few days, but it's only been a few days, but it's been it's been terrific. It's interesting that product in some ways looks sort of more premium than organic. So a combination of you know having a really good product and at a price point that that is sort of more attainable by more people, I think is I think you know I do think we've hit a, a, a really sweet spot. Are there slightly different properties to Jersey milk than other milks? Yes, the main property, it, it is taste, and, uh, and it's because Jersey has a, a, you know, it's that classic thing. So, Frisians are great for protein, just for volume, whereas Jerseys are much higher um, butterfat content, so they are better, better drinking qualities. And, of course, lots of people use milk in recipes. How does it stand up in that capacity? It's like anything, it's just a better quality product. So, you know, the, the, that quality should shine through in the, you know, in the end result of, of um, cooking or, or, or baking. You know, in the same way that decent quality butter um, sort of shines through. And what about distribution? It's in three quarters of where we want to be. There are two main supermarket chains. They can't for, you know, 80 plus percent of the volume. We are in um, all of one of them and on half of the other.
And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with INTLFC Stone. And this week we're talking to Charlie Highland. So just uh, another volatile week on the dairy markets. Um, actually, on the global dairy markets, been quite volatile. Uh, a big part of the the move this week has been led by by New Zealand. Um, just over the last 24 hours, really, the the home of price has dropped uh, by about five percent. After well, led largely after um, Fonterra announced they're adding some additional volume to next week's GDT auction, and that's put a bit of nervousness in in the markets in general. And European markets have also been a little bit uh, weaker, particularly on butter. The butter market actually just continuing to move slightly lower, not not aggressively so this week, but uh, overall, if if we look at the last six weeks, it's dropped from kind of levels of about 4,500 euros down to this week where it's trading around 38.50 in quarter three. It's been under pressure and I think a large part of the pressure has been uh, driven by a little bit of weakness in the global demand. Um, but we've had a lot of exports, uh, we've had a lot of numbers out this week actually and uh, and one of them which was a bit surprising was the, the butter exports out of Europe which were better than expected for April uh, where we ex- our exports were up 27% compared to last year, although last year was quite a low export uh, month but we we, did, we exported uh, almost 15,000 tons of butter which was better than expected but a large portion of that was going to the US there's just been a concern in general that global demand has been a bit weak uh, that number a little bit better than expected but overall not a lot going to the Middle East and, and Asia so uh, that's been putting pressure on butter and also uh, some milk numbers out this week which are better than expected uh, particularly on the German side where we had been expecting uh, looking at the weekly milk collections low numbers but actually they've uh, when you look at it from milk solids perspective, in April they were actually up 1.3% compared to last year. So that was that was a good bit better than most people had been expecting. Uh, French numbers still looking weak, down current, currently about uh, 0.3% in April. So that's overall the milk collection uh, picture in Europe has been up a little bit, but not dramatically so. So the bigger the bigger thing driving prices down, I think, has been um, the the fact that global demand has been a bit weak. Thanks, Charlie. We'll catch up again next week. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for this week's Dairy Dialogue. Five interviews on a variety of topics, and it didn't even turn out too long. Perhaps a lesson for me to not talk so much. Next week, we'll have some interviews from the IFT event in New Orleans, courtesy of our reporter in the US, Beth Newhart, who got to enjoy the local culinary delights as well as the humidity, and we'll also talk to Pacor about their more environmentally friendly packaging products for the dairy industry. And hopefully I'll be free from this rotten cold. As always, have a great week and thanks for listening.